Small Pilots Plain Tales, The Butcher Bird In many countries around the world, if you find a thorn bush which resembles a tiny meat market, it might well belong to a perching bird or songbird of the genus Lanius. These shrikes are common in Europe, Western Asia, Tropical Africa, and there are even a few species in Australia. Its genus name comes from the Latin for butcher, hence its common nickname, the butcher bird. It got its gruesome name from its gruesome habit of parking its prey, often half-eaten insects, small lizards and such, onto the spikes of its favourite thorn bush to be stored there for later consumption. The German name for these birds is Würger, which also means strangler, and by coincidence was also the name given to the Focke-Wulf 190 World War II fighter. At the time, radial-engined land-based fighters were rare in Europe, as many manufacturers believed that the large frontal area of a radial design would cause too much drag on a small fighter. Enter the aeronautical engineer and test pilot Kurt Tank. Tank had seen the United States, particularly the US Navy, make good use of radial-powered fighters, and since there was a shortage of the inline Daimler-Benz 601 engines, a radial made sense. American designs used the Knacker cowling, invented by the American National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics back in 27. And not only did Tank adopt this, but he improved on the concept by fitting an oversized spinner to deflect air and reduce drag. He fitted wide track, inwards retracting undercarriage that could withstand a lot of punishment, and instead of the usual cable-activated flight controls, designed rigid push rods that had no slack in them and gave the pilot very precise control. The design team also tried to minimize trim changes throughout the flight envelope to reduce pilot workload, and fitted an electrically movable tailplane for pitch trim. A vacuum-formed bubble canopy gave excellent visibility, and the armament was a central part of the design requirement rather than an afterthought on some aircraft, so that the 190 carried six synchronized 7.92 machine guns, two of which were quickly replaced by a pair of 20mm cannons. The 190 quickly became one of the most feared Axis fighters of the Second World War, and it was a central part of the backbone for the Luftwaffe's Jagdwaffe, its fighter force. The Royal Air Force started to encounter 190As over France in August 1941 and found it better than the Spitfire in every way except its turn radius. The 190 maintained its superiority until the introduction of the Spitfire Mark IX which evened up the playing field. Up to that point, as Douglas Bader put it, The Focke-Wulf 190 certainly gave the British a shock. It outclimbed and outdived the Spitfire. Now, for the first time, the Germans were outflying our pilots. They were also outgunning them. 
for the best part of the year and until the arrival of the Spitfire Mark 9, the Focke-Wulf 190 commanded the skies. In order to develop a better mark of Spitfire, the RAF wanted to know more about this German fighter and were desperate to get their hands on information about it. They preferably wanted to capture one intact so that they could examine it in detail and test its performance. Various schemes were put forward, one of the more outlandish being proposed by squadron leader Paul Ritchie, a decorated fighter pilot. This audacious plan bordered on the ridiculous, but such was the concern about the 190 as that it was seriously considered. The idea was for a German-speaking RAF pilot wearing a Luftwaffe uniform to fly a captured ME-109 fighter, of which the RAF possessed several, made to look as if it had been damaged in combat, and then landed in France at a Focke-Wulf 190 aerodrome. The pilot, Ritchie explained in his autobiography, would then taxi into where the 190s were and angrily shout a stream of German, saying he was a Colonel so-and-so and he needed a new fighter as there was a heavy raid coming this way. With any luck, an airman would see him into a Focke-Wulf and he'd steal it. A slightly more realistic plan was devised by Captain Philip Pickney, an officer in the commandos, and Spitfire pilot Geoffrey Quill. Quill wasn't just any Spitfire pilot. He was the chief test pilot of Vickers Supermarine, having taken over from Mutt Summers, and was already highly decorated, possessing the Air Force Cross at the ripe old age of 23. He had been alternating between flying operations with 65 Squadron at Hornchurch and test-flying new marks of Spitfire. Aptly called Operation Air Thief, it entailed the two men being smuggled into France by boat where the resistance would lead them to the nearest Focke-Wulf 190 base. Quill would then sneak onto the airfield under the cover of darkness and take off in one of the Focke-Wulf 190s while Piccany and the resistance fighters created a diversion. Privately, Quill did not rate their chances of survival very highly, but then came a remarkable event that rendered such Biggles-style adventures redundant. It was June 1942, and Oberleutnant Armin Faber, the Gruppen adjutant, a pilot who also performed administrative duties, was about to go flying in his new Focke-Wulf 190. The adjutant of Einhundertelf Gruppen Jagerschwaderschwei, the Richthofen wing of the Luftwaffe, was flying with Siebenstaffel that day, and they were scrambled to attack a formation of Boston Light Bombers. The RAF Boston, otherwise known as the Douglas A-20 Havoc, was an American aircraft that served with various air forces, including the RAF. But it was both slow and poorly armed, so as a day bomber it met with disastrous results. The Luftwaffe pilots were expecting a few easy kills, and even if they met fighters, they knew that their aircraft held a distinct edge. 
That day, the six Bostons were escorted by three Spitfire squadrons manned by Czechoslovaks. Numbers 310, 312 and 313. Whilst they engaged the 190s over the channel, the Bostons fled the scene and all landed safely, but the fighters were fully occupied. Despite being outnumbered, the superior German aircraft downed seven Spits with the loss of only two, one of which was brought down by a collision which took out both aircraft and killed the RAF pilot. In the heat of an engagement, it's easy to lose track of other aircraft and if your fight drifts a few miles away, it's not hard to become completely separated from your colleagues. Armin Faber was desperately defending himself from the aggressive attacks of Sergeant Frantisek Trajna, and since only one of his cannons was working, he was trying hard to disengage. The fight drifted over British soil, Exeter in Devon to be precise, where, after much high-speed manoeuvring, Faber flew an Immelman turn into Sun and met his opponent head-on. As the fighters closed, Trezhna saw his tracers dance all around the 190 with no strikes, but then there was a jolt as part of his starboard wing flew off and a splinter hit him in the right arm. The Spitfire went into a spin and burst into flames, forcing him to bail out. Wounded by the shrapnel, the Czech landed hard from his parachute descent and broke a leg. Farmhands came to help him and he told them, The bastard got me! His spit crashed near Black Dog in Devon. Faber looked around and took stock. The ground beneath him didn't look familiar, and after all that turning, he wasn't sure exactly where he was, but then he saw the sea and headed towards the coast. What he had actually spotted was the north coast of Devon and the Bristol Channel, and flying visually, he headed towards it instead of south. Had he bothered to check his compass, he might have seen his error. After crossing a body of water which he assumed to be the channel, he spied France, except that it was the south coast of Wales, and getting very short of fuel, looked for an airfield to land at. Spying one, he overflew it, waggled his wings, and landed. On the ground at RAF Pembrey, the duty pilot was Sergeant Jeffreys. He spotted the visitor, and his jaw dropped when he realised that it was a German fighter. Grabbing the nearest thing he had to a weapon, he told his men that when the aircraft landed they should direct it to the dispersal. As the slightly confused Faber taxied his aircraft to a halt, Jeffreys jumped up on the wing, and the enormity of his mistake suddenly struck the German as the sergeant thrust a signal flare gun into his face and ordered him to surrender. The German pilot was so despondent that he actually tried to shoot himself, but was disarmed before he could do any damage. After all, it was Faber himself 
who had personally handed over the written order from Reich Marshal Hermann Göring to his commanding officer, which stated clearly that no Focke-Wulf fighter was to cross the channel and must turn back to France upon reaching the halfway point, an order that he had disobeyed. Faber was driven to interrogation under the escort of Group Captain David Atchley, who, fearful of an escape attempt, kept his service revolver aimed at the Luftwaffe pilot for the whole journey, at least until the car hit a pothole when the jolt caused him to discharge his weapon by accident, nearly hitting the unfortunate German and putting a hole into the door of his Austin Cambridge. As nobody wanted to risk crashing it, now that they had a chance to examine this remarkable fighter, Faber's aircraft was dismantled and transported by lorry to the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough. There it was repainted in RAF colours and given the serial number Mike Papa 499. Flying trials were carried out and mock combat missions flown against a Spitfire that proved invaluable at assessing how best to modify the next generation of fighters to counter Kurt Tank's marvellous design. Its strengths and shortcomings were soon identified and the information passed on to frontline squadrons so that pilots could adjust their tactics in order to exploit the Fock Wolf's few weaknesses, such as its sluggish performance at high altitude. Some of the features of the Focke-Wulf 190 were actually copied and worked into subsequent British fighter designs. When they had finished playing with their Verga, their Butcher Bird, the fighter was dismantled and scrapped in September 1943, although parts of it and some wreckage from Trezhna's Spitfire can be seen at the Shoreham Aircraft Museum near Sevenoaks in Kent. If you ever get a chance to visit, you should also pop into their delightful tea room and gardens, the old bakery. And what of Armin Faber? There is some suggestion that he deliberately surrendered his aircraft, but regardless he became a prisoner of war and was sent to Canada. There he remained, despite two escape attempts, until nearing the end of the war when he was repatriated because of ill health. Faber recovered and on September the 21st, 1991, he visited the Little Shoreham Museum and donated his officer's dagger and pilot's badge for their display. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>